0: Hello and welcome to the Sitcom Club. It's myself, hey ho, Mooncat and co. Last couple of weeks I've been with Sitcom Club members Boggan's Strovia and last week Dr. Christian Troy and now returning to the round table, or is it the square window, is your old pal Ocho. Hello. How you doing? Alright. Now, I've got something in front of me that may be of interest to yourself because you are on record, as saying that you are not a huge fan of 21st century television.
1: This is true. And, of course, I have found out that there is going to be another television adaptation of and Lucia, and I'm not going to give it a chance. No. I don't care if that makes me peevish and close-minded. I am peevish and close-minded. Yeah, no, I can understand. I I know where you're coming from. I've had my heart broken too many times before by television.
0: I know what you mean, and... I think that you can probably damn put... father Brown. That was the end of it all. Really. I do. I know a few people who are quite keen on father Brown. Quite enjoying Mark Williams. The thing in is, that is role. that
1: they're not adaptations of the stories. Well, for a start, half the first series was just new stories, despite the fact they hadn't run out. But of the ones that were actually adaptations of Chesterton stories, by the the end of the adaptations, it was like this has the same title as the story we're pretending to adapt. <laughs> If you're going to adapt a murder mystery, changing things like who did what and why is a bit too much. But so that... That's what annoyed me about it. There's nothing there that's Father Brown. He might as well be Monsignor Smith or Canon Ramsbottom.
0: I have to admit that not being familiar with the texts, I do often get the name Father Brown confused with Father Abraham, <laughs> as in the Smurfs. Yes. What I was actually going to say to you, with regard to 21st century television, or not, as the case may be, is that in the UK, as you'll be aware, we are preparing for the launch of the local TV channels. I think the first one has gone on air, which I think is Grimsby, I'm not quite sure. There's one in London that's going to launch at the end of the month. However, as a placeholder on Freeview, before all the stations launch, is a channel called Bonanza Bonanza. And it's just sitting... Right slap bang in the middle of the Freeview EPG, and it's probably, wherever you are in the country, it's probably going to be on channel 64, but have a wee look, and it's just like your local station, your Antenna TV, which is always showing the old black and white bits and pieces. I'm just looking at the program guide just now. Right now, we just had Sherlock Holmes on a minute ago, we've now got the Lone Ranger, TrackNet coming up, Flash Gordon.
1: There is a key difference here. Oh, I think those are all public domain shows that Bonanza Bonanza is showing.
0: I think you're right, yes.
1: It would be worth tuning in and see if any of those Bonanza episodes have the Bonanza theme tune on.
0: I have heard that the airings of the Beverly Hillbillies are possibly without their opening theme, but I haven't seen it to check. So, could the Beverly Hillbillies, everybody knows the Beverly Hillbillies theme music, of course. Could it be that that somehow is still under copyright? Whereas the show itself is out?
1: It's a bizarre situation. It's not the entire series of these shows that are necessarily in the public domain. Just selected ones. A bizarre situation with how copyright renewal works, but So as far as I know, Dragnet, Lone Ranger, Beverly Hillbilly's Bonanza, they're not PD from beginning to end. There's just enough of them that you will always see DVDs in like gas stations. Yes. Places like that. Yeah.
0: Television classics, we'll say. It would be rather irritating if there was a Flash Gordon 26 part story in which the last part was still under copyright. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few things. There's also some Lucy show on there and some business. Yeah, it's got some, obviously, as the name suggests, it's got some bonanza as well. So, yeah, if you've got access to Freeview, Channel 64, have a wee look at it. It's quite nice. Before we get into today's topic, any other business? from last week business outstanding from a few previous weeks
1: actually because a while ago i mentioned can anybody think of any plots being abandoned in sitcoms and i went to tv tropes and i found a good one as time goes by there's an episode very moving episode where lionel's father is dying and there's this decision as to whether to let him know or not to prevent spoilers i won't tell you whether they tell him or not doesn't really make any difference anyway because At some point it said, well, he's only got about a year left. This is then forgotten, and Lionel's father has a few years left in him. It's never mentioned again. I don't think it's even mentioned as a a brush with death. That's quite an odd one. I mean... I think it was just a case of, you know what, people like the character. Let's just leave him alone. Yeah, I
0: guess so, I guess so. I mean, I'm struggling to think of any actual full-on plots that have been abandoned, I can think of well, this is us then getting into the difference between plots being abandoned and a retcon situation, but I've mentioned previously, for example, Gary and Men Behaving Badly, in series 3 drives to the All Night Chemist to get Dorothy Milk of Magnesia, and yet, in series 6, he's never learned to drive, and finds himself later on behind the wheel and thinking, well, how hard can it be? But yeah, that's not really a storyline as such. Because it's not as if they had a storyline, but they started them on driving lessons or anything like that. So
1: I can think. I even mentioned it in Metal
0: Mickey, of another sitcom, where
1: the lead character speaks with a monotone. Small wonder. Well, I said that like that was perfectly obvious. I'll slap your forehead. You've never seen Small Wonder, have you?
0: I actually was when you said that just now. I was getting that mixed up with. What was it called? Was it called first edition? Was it something about a guy who was like a newspaper reporter who could travel back in time? It was on ITV back in the day.
1: You're not thinking of early edition, which yes! is about somebody yes! who used to get tomorrow's newspaper today. That's it. Yep, that's
0: it. You've got it. Yep. But that's not Early uh, that, that, Edition. That's Early edition no.
1: Small oh. Wonder. I'm not seeing
0: <laughs> The titles are not <laughs> Well, the Easy Confused. Let me just check Syllables. Small no, no, not even syllables. It matches. No, no, I have no idea. I have no idea why I was thinking of that. Okay, is it a different world? The sequel to the Cosby Show.
1: Yes. Well, it's a spin-off. I'm not sure that they didn't run next to each other. Is the word con- is that is concurrently the correct word for that. Ah, uh, what? This is running at the same time. Yeah. So, was there a character in a different world who spoke in a monotone?
0: I've no idea. I, I know, I know of it. I know the only reason I remember a different world is because they were running them on Channel Four once. In like the mornings in the summertime, and then this advisory message came on, and it says, "Parents, you may wish to know that today's episode of A Different World deals with mature themes." Mm-hmm. So, mm, you know, maybe you want to leave the room and let your kids watch it without embarrassment. But yeah, so that's the only thing I remember about A Different World. And of course, the announcer who actually said that, did not he didn't go, hmm, that was just me adding for a fit.
1: And of course, we're talking about cute talkative robot of the early 80s. We didn't really mention the late 70s, early 80s, post-Star Wars robot boom, like Twiki in Buck Rogers. R. And K9 in Doctor Who. And of course, Dusty Bin. Yes, th- yeah, I th- th- there is an
0: element of that. And uh, what about that Kenneth Williams? Newsatron in Panorama. <laughs> What about Galloping Galaxies?
1: Oh, let's not think about Galloping Galaxies anymore.
0: <laughs> What's wrong with Galloping
1: Galaxies? I was Actually, one note I have here about, you know, nostalgia. I think you could make a million on this for the nostalgia market. White dog poo flavoured spangles.
0: <laughs> Regarding the aforementioned metal one, thank you very much to Sally Mortmore, who tweeted us with regard to metal mickey and she just asked the question whatever happened to lucinda bateson i mentioned that she was at arts educational school in tring with herself i did a little bit of research and i couldn't actually see all, all i found on online was just simply threads that said exactly that whatever happened to lucinda bateson so if anybody knows or if you are listening to bateson then get in touch let us know
1: so a couple of things hanging over from your mucky movies podcast. Well, now can
0: I just point out when you say your mucky movie, I didn't, I didn't make them. I wasn't
1: the distributor. So no, your podcast about mucky movies. Yes.
0: Well, no, no, no. Just in case anybody's joined us for the first time today, let's just point out that two weeks ago, Balkan and I reviewed what are called sex comedies featuring popular British sitcom stars. Because if you just say mucky movies, then people just think you mean anything. Well, anyway,
1: full points for mentioning the Bolting Brothers, because I don't think they get mentioned enough. In the commentary world, people tend to jump straight to the carry-ons, and I don't think enough people that... Is the right word coarsening? That slight coarsening of the British sense of humour starts to come in with the Bolting Brothers, especially if you can lip-read in School for Scoundrels. (laughs) Terry Thomas says something pretty salty to Ian Carmichael. (laughs) You also got the title of a very popular British sitcom wrong in a really good way. <laughs> what did I say? Because I'd like to see this remake. You said, It ain't half Hoff, Mum. <laughs> David Hasselhoff is in Burma in the Second World War.
0: Now, has he got Kit with him?
1: Yes, but uh, it's Kit Hesketh Harvey. <laughs> Who is okay for cabaret song? <laughs> not great for driving around at high speed.
0: Is this Kit as in Kit and the Will?
1: Yes. I'm not putting the guy down, but I was listening to a radio documentary about, and I've forgotten the guy's name, Ronald Franco. And somebody said, here's modern day cabaret performer. I was like, well, it was going to be Kit Hesketh Harvey. There is nobody else in that realm <laughs> now. I, he's doing a good job. Okay, any other outstanding business? No, not from me. I have said everything I need to say on the subject's that have been covered in previous weeks.
0: All I'll say is that I am choosing to deliberately misinterpret Birdie's tweet. And when she said, Metal Mickey, what on earth next the double-deckers? I'm taking that as a request. So in the forthcoming episode, we will be reviewing double-deckers featuring TV's own Melvin Hayes. And we may actually do it in a really thorough manner and review every episode individually on individual podcasts. Or not. And then after that, we're going to be doing Simon and the Witch. (laughs) (laughs) You're trying to bring it back around to Galloping Galaxies. I can sense it. (laughs) I didn't mention what on earth. I was never a fan of that. We have much to discuss, Gus. This week, we are talking about an area of the country. Back in the day when television channels didn't have stupid names like Dave... They actually had proper names which indicated which part of the country they were emanating from. Now, I don't Yorkshire know... Yorkshire came from Yorkshire, Central came from the centre of England, and Granada came from Spain. Hmm. Now, this is a company name which I don't think we will have previously mentioned in any great fashion. This week, we are talking about two shows from Southern Television. Southern Television was the ITV contractor for the South of England from 1958 to 1981. And they were best known for producing local programming and shows occasionally for the network like the children's series *How* with Fred Dynage, shows with Jack Hargreaves like Out of Town and so on. However, in the last couple of years, Brian Izzard, producer and director, who was previously with London Weekend and he was the man behind... Shows like Not In Your Nelly, Wahey, and The Rag Trade, On The Bussies, Fen Street Gang. He was also the director of Within These Walls, the drama. And in the late 70s, he moved, first of all, he moved to Scottish television, and he was a producer of a show with Ian Cuthbertson called Charles Esquire, which I'm sure we're going to review at some point. And then he joined Southern Television for what was then going to be their last couple of years as franchise holder, And he produced and directed a handful of shows of the type which Seven weren't really known for. Now two of these were entertainment Well I mean
1: I've just checked through the Radio Times comedy guide and if that is to be believed and why not those are the only two what you'd call adult sitcoms.
0: Yes indeed. Every
1: other entry in there, I think there may be one sketch show, but every other entry there sitcom wise is for children like Bright's Boffins or Follow That Dog.
0: Anyway, while Brian Izzard was at Southern TV, he was behind two networked sitcoms that we're going to talk about today. Now, as we've established, Southern didn't really do sitcoms, it's just not their kind of thing. Uh, the kind of shows that they would have had networked were shows that were to their strength, so things like, for example, children's programmes, like things like Run Around with Mike Reedan initially. Well,
1: should we mention the political, political background? background?
0: Okay, you'll forgive me if I go over something that is, to some
1: people, basic knowledge. To others, there's always a chance someone listening to this hasn't really given this much thought before, and this will be helpful. Prior to 2002, ITV was not really one channel. It's been a slow decay of this process. So even people who were watching it long before 2002 might not really be obsessed by this, like some of us. ITV was a network made up of roughly 14 different regions, each region being served by a different company. The number of companies and regions does fluctuate between 1955 and 2002, but let's just grab onto the number 14. So a different company would serve a different franchise, and these contracts were not lifetime contracts, so they were regularly re-advertised, reapplied for, and occasionally turned over to somebody else. And that's the situation we're looking at with Southern Television at the time we're talking about. They reapplied for their franchise in 1980. Their license went up to the end of 1981. And it was subsequently announced that they were not going to have their franchise renewed. The Southern region of ITV was going to be handed over to another company. But they had to see out the rest of their contract. So at the time these shows are going out, Southern know that they don't have a future as franchise holders for that particular area in the ITV network. We could do with an expert on Southern Television to help us out with this, because there are a number of different options here. One, this is stuff that was stacked up to help with the bid. Maybe, possibly, knowing it wouldn't be broadcast before the bid was going in, but it was something you could put in there. We're going to be making some sitcoms were going to be making a game show. Maybe it was made with a view to putting it out before the axe fell and at some point it became obvious to Southern that they weren't going to get their franchise renewed so it got salted away. You know that strange little accountancy Dodge ITV sometimes have where they will sit on a show for years because an unbroadcast show can be declared as a different kind of asset from a broadcast show? Or did they have their eyes on the future? Channel 4's coming, and Channel 4 is a publisher-broadcaster. It will need independent producers to supply it with everything it needs, as well as ITV companies.
0: So, the first piece that comes, we're going to talk about is That Beryl Marston from 1981, starring Julian McKenzie, Gareth Hunt, and Jonathan Morris. Now, Ocho, what is the basic premise of this endeavour?
1: The basic premise in my eyes seems to change. Well, Jonathan Morris... Announces in the pre-credit sequence what the basic premise. He draws a picture of his parents. Says these are my parents. And then he tears the picture in half and he says, "This is the problem." And the audience laughs. <laughs> Marriage breaking down. That's what we find funny out here in Southernland. And there's quite a few moments where they're laughing at things like the word divorce. Or so, Mr. and Mrs. Bodley, a married couple living in Brighton are no longer a married couple. They've divorced because Mr Bodley went off and had an affair with a woman called Beryl Marston. So we find Mrs Bodley trying to get her life back on track. She's a single parent family now, with two children, Jonathan Morris, who is about 25 by the looks of it. Uh, people, People look different in those days. I'm going to say he's a teenager, he's sixth form, and Julie Mackenzie's character also has a daughter who I would say is around about eleven or twelve years old, and she also has a shop because it's the it's the nineteen eighties. Women can have their own businesses, and there's a health food shop next door run by Roy Barraclough. No, sadly, it's not a crossover <laughs> with Mother's Ruin. It's run by Ardlo Hanlon because, of course, I, my hero. No. Hang on a minute, we haven't this done this. Is me, this, yeah, health food shops in sitcoms. It's a whole, but we ha- we haven't reviewed Mother's Ruin yet, have we? No, we haven't. We'll get oh! to it. We will get to it. Yes, we will.
0: We've got all six episodes. We've seen
1: all I'm trying to cover for the fact that I've completely forgotten the name of the character and the actor who runs the health food shop next door. I can remember that the health food shop is called Nuts in May. Yes. Is is Harvey played by Peter John. He he is a practitioner of homosexualism. <clears throat> no, this is part of their whole hey, it's the nineteen eighties. Here is an out gay man who is not entirely a screaming stereotype. There is, you know, there is a certain extent that he's just like that. Ooh, let's gossip, love. That that was my impression of a gay man. <laughs> that was my impression of a gay man in a 1980 sitcom. Sorry.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really making this. No, I've, just, I've just got this idea that somebody on Bob Says Opportunity Knocks, he's just on Frank Spencer, and he says, and oh, now my next impression, a gay man. <clears throat>
1: so anyway as part of the whole modernity we have an out gay man who is best friends with the lead character and now it probably looks quaint and gauche. i'm sure for 1981 it was a big leap forward
0: well at this point we've had the gay couple in agony two years earlier peter Denyer and jeremy bullock had lukewarm in porridge and we've had neville
1: in odd man out No, actually, I was going to say say what you like about him. He is out. But is he out? Because he changes his mind at one point. Besides, he's straight. So we're trying to talk about attitudes moving on in the 1980s. And frankly, I think we sound like we're from the 1950s. Can I just interject at this point? Which, personally speaking, is a big advance on my normal.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm sitting here watching Dragnet on Bonanza Bonanza, for goodness sake.
1: So that's the premise. It doesn't play out the way I thought it was going to play out, as indicated by episode one. Oh, I forgot to add another little kink. Well, I have I have mentioned it briefly, but the fact that Jonathan Morris's character is allowed to break the fourth wall,
0: the only character
1: he does do so in the introductions, but he is allowed to do so in other scenes as well. so there there are bits where he's talking. And isn't there one bit where he addresses the audience and yet somebody replies to what he's just said? There's some indication that there's this very bizarre. Semi-transparent This is when he
0: is mooning over Millicent Martin. I don't know, because if
1: I knew, I would have said wouldn't I?
0: <laughs> now, we are throwing these names around as if people know who we're talking about. But apart from Julia McKenzie, because people will have seen Julia McKenzie in all manner of things. I mean, as far as sitcoms are concerned, she's best remembered for Fresh Field. But she still appears in dramas and all sorts today.
1: Is Agatha Christie's Marple still going? Yes, well, that's probably what she's best known for right now.
0: Gareth Hunt, reading a user review on IMDb about Bill Marston, this chap says here, when he died a few years ago, several papers reported insultingly that he was best remembered for his coffee adverts. Now, I don't. if that was the actual headline, if it said Gareth Hunt remembered for Nescafe adverts, then yeah, I suppose so, but that is actually something that he is very well remembered for because that was a long-running campaign. I suppose second to that, you would recall him as Steed's assistant in the new Avengers, who is the only cast member of the Avengers to have the same surname as an Anglo television quiz show.
1: Well, I think you're forgetting in, in some of the early, less known series of the Avengers that don't get repeated, there was Venus, Sail of the Century.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, Jonathan Morris... It depends on your age group, I suppose, because I suppose most people associate Jonathan Morris with bread, and as far as the family members were concerned, he was the family member who was the artistic one. He wanted to be a poet, he wanted to be a published poet, that was his big ambition. But then later on, Jonathan Morris slipped into that no man's land where he was an actor, but he was sort of known for being himself, because didn't he... I think he was a presenter of the movie game on Children's BBC. And before you know it, I think the other person I sort of associate with this kind of position is um, Leslie Joseph, where you're known for just being that person rather than... I think than...
1: Leslie Joseph got Alan Hale Jr. Syndrome. Have I explained that before? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So Alan Hale wasn't just an actor who played the Skipper. After a while, he became the Skipper from Gilligan's Island. Jonathan Morris didn't become whatever his name was, Boswell. And I think Leslie Joseph, she, you know, she'd be appearing in commercials and everybody knew she was playing Dorian. And I don't think Leslie Joseph and Dorian are necessarily that similar. But that was it. The people were getting her on in the hope of getting the character she played. I think he did a stint as Joseph of Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat fame in the West End.
0: See, my recent recollection of Jonathan Morris is always seeing him as himself. Rather than an acting rules. so like I said, he presented the movie game on CBBC. He also quite often turned up on. Do you remember when Channel Five launched initially in ninety seven? Do you remember Night Fever with Suggs? It's basically, celebrities just doing karaoke singing. But it's not as bad as it sounds. I mean, it's not just them like in the corner of a pub, of karaoke machine, being recorded on a VHS cassette. There's nothing like that. It was actually like a full on big old Saturday night spectacular. So I remember appearing on that a few times and then doing all sort of bits and pieces, turning up on, not quite a reality show, but just, you know, some silly little sort of gimmick show where he'd be like a contestant on it or something along those lines. But I think it's fair to say that he's not really shaken off the role of Adrian Boswell.
1: Are you just showing off now that you know the names of the characters in Bread?
0: No, I'm showing off it- having Boswell the
1: Boswell ability- A, Boswell B, Boswell C.
0: I'm showing off the ability to use Wikipedia. Ah. Um, <laughs> who the hell knows the names of the different Boswells, for goodness sake? A surprise man. He's Boswell got the chops in this.
1: Yeah, he's got the chops in barrel Marston to keep the audience's interest. He doesn't come across as too cloying or annoying, which addressing the camera is a risk. Gareth Hunt is fine, but he changes the character. I think he comes across as a little darker and more aggressive darker is probably the wrong word to use a little bit gruff there is just something about right here's the situation initially i thought she's a woman she's on her own she's been treated badly that's going to be the main thrust is she going to get another man because hey we're not that advanced she's still incomplete without her man i thought she's going to go on disastrous dates no the the thrust changes somewhat to are they going to get back together again and I don't want them to get back together again. She's been cheated on. She's been cheated on by somebody who is nasty to her best friend. And I think there's just maybe just something about the gruffness of Gareth Hunt's voice that makes him seem a little meaner than he otherwise could be. I was supposed to feel slightly sorry because I think he's been chucked out by Beryl Marston. So he hasn't got his wife, he hasn't got his fancy woman, but there's just something about I don't I don't want this marriage to come back.
0: Now, in the IMDb review that I was quoting there from user Shade Grenade, it's described as a torrid affair between Jerry and Bell Marston. I don't know if it was torrid, because we never really saw much of it. I prefer the word turgid. <laughs> but we're going to come in a second, when we get on to episode two, we're going to come to what I thought was a little bit of a, a faux pas, so to speak, in terms of Bell Marston being... The third person in the triangle, but we'll come to that momentarily. When we were watching this, Ocho, you said to me on a few occasions, Jerry's just such a jerk. He's just such a horrible bloke. And as exactly as you say there, you don't want, you're not rooting for them. You don't want them to get back together again. But I was trying to remember the whole time, I was trying to think, who is this reminding me of? And the other day it clicked. It was reminding me of, you remember the love story between tim and dawn in the office tim played by martin freeman who pines after dawn the receptionist played by lucy davis and it's clearly a sort of mutual attraction however dawn has this boyfriend called lee and there's nothing you could say that is apparently likeable about lee he's just there he will come in from the warehouse. He will pick up Don. He doesn't have any sort of sense of humour, as far as we can tell. He doesn't seem to be particularly generous or caring or kind. Uh, he just doesn't have anything about him. And you're just sort of thinking, why the hell is Don with this bloke when she could be with Tim? And
1: like the milkwoman in Open All Hours.
0: Yes, I guess yeah, you could say Meet her yeah. fiance Watson that's right, yeah, there's nothing much of him, is there but I guess the answer really, and I think actually Lucy Davis was asked this uh, with regard to why is dawn with Lee this is from memories so apologies if I'm getting this wrong, but as I understand it, I think that she simply said there are parts of Lee's personality that she's attracted to such as the fact that you know he works hard and he provides his his role as her partner and so on and and i think that that's the same thing that's going on here with regards to jerry i think that jerry we
1: see a lot of jerry jerry's a constant presence we see jerry at home at work at play and there's just i feel like i'm being a bit unfair because i I feel like I was making it sound like Gareth Hunt kind of made a mess of it. No, it's a combination. If you've got an actor like Gareth Hunt, you need to give him slightly different lines. Or if you're going to write the character like he has written, don't give it to Gareth Hunt. It's two different factors. I think Gareth Hunt could have played a likable ex-husband we'd want him to get back together with if he'd been written slightly differently.
0: But he's just, he's just, he's, he's just mean. Okay, now I've just looked this up. This is the the Wikipedia entry for Don Tilsley in The Office, and it says, Lee's relationship with Don is constantly problematic. Lee is essentially portrayed as a decent man and solid, dependable partner. However, he is seen to be sexist and derogatory towards Don as well. Now, I think that solid, dependable partner, I think that's the key bit in this, and I think that this is, first of all, I think why Georgie still has an idea of getting back with Jerry, despite everything that's happened despite his affair and so on and also yeah, they've been together for a long time they've got two kids and that's the back of my mind as well
1: I'm just not buying what they're selling and I know, I've seen arguments break out before where somebody, well yeah but if you imagine this and imagine that, and Im- no they have to do the work Don't say- well there might be things that are not written or seen that exp- well, if they're not written or seen or implied, then they're not there. I know sometimes we like to read things into the text that we know are not there, because it's fun. It's fun at looking at the edges that are left, and sort of saying, well, what kind of piece would fit there? But with this, I'm assuming that it's not just the we're supposed to care about this. And I didn't. I didn't think, come on guys,
0: put your differences aside. You mentioned earlier on, you alluded to the idea that we think that Beryl Marston might actually have been earmarked for transmission in 1980. And the reason that we think that is because there is a flashback scene when Jonathan Morris says all this started 18 months ago when Georgie found out about Jerry's affair with Beryl Marston. And the way it's depicted, Jerry's actually reading a copy of The Daily Telegraph and on the front of it is talking about the general election, which was May 79.
1: And there's also the fact that there's a Christmas episode that went out.
0: Yes. Phil does specifically say 18 months, rather than just a couple of years ago or something like that. So that got me thinking then, well, yeah, this looks like it's been sort of pencilled in for autumn of 1980. But nevertheless, what I was actually going to mention there was, in a roundabout way, we had that little flashback to the time when the marriage broke up. I think actually it would have benefited from... Another flashback, just a little bit earlier than that, showing Jerry and Georgie together, and showing the two of them as a couple enjoying the the early days of their marriage. Because no, I think
1: a... I think any scene that that I would think ultimately that it was a lie being made up by Jerry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, you think this is going to suddenly? That
1: would be actually. That would have been a good episode. Jerry trying to persuade Georgie to take him back hey, what about this time? And we get the flashback, and it's all kind of like Vaseline on the lens and it's all beautiful and Jerry's just being, what a guy! (laughs) And then Georgie's like, actually, I think you'll find it happen like this, and Jerry's
0: like, Bill Sykes. Actually, do you know what? We could have had that situation where Jerry says, oh, you know, it wasn't all that bad. What about that time that we went off to the Lake District and we had that wonderful weekend in the hotel and George is like, we never went to the Lake District. And then Jenny oh. suddenly realises that this had actually happened between him and Beryl Marston. That would have gone down badly.
1: We're making it sound worse than it is. It's pretty strong. I think we left.
0: Yeah, no, I saw this show initially. There was a channel on satellite, no longer around, called Film24. And they had access to Southern TV's archives and they were shown some bits and pieces. And amongst them, they were showing this and also Mr. Jones, that we'll come to later on. And yeah, I really I really took to it, and I'm not ashamed to say it, I've even hired the DVD of that Bill Marston from Love Film. Not many people can say that. I'll keep
1: it, they won't miss it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, this is four years ago, so, I, yeah, I I've my... since returned it.
1: <laughs> so I suppose my problem is, episode one indicates a certain show, and then it's, it's not the show I thought it was going to be, it's a bit more conservative. I don't mean that as a pejorative, it just is wasn't what I thought it was going to be, defaults to its typical southernness.
0: You do have some conflict there between Jerry and Harvey, particularly in, I think it's episode four, where Jerry is flu ridden and he's staying over. And yeah, Jerry sometimes he comes across quite harsh towards Harvey. And yet I noticed that by the Christmas episode right at the end, I think, it's not exactly that he's warm to him, but he's just, Jerry's being less of a pain in the final episode for the good of having a harmonious Christmas with all the relatives there. And I'm sort of arguing in, in Jerry's favour, just for the sake of argument, but I think that that shows a sort of nicer, not nice, but a nicer side of Jerry that he's willing to sort of bottle up perhaps is, is urged to sound off in order to then give georgie a nice
1: christmas so this is 33 years old do we worry about spoilers the thing is is that the way things are now with view on demand old shows are easier to access than ever before i think we should be fairly careful about spoilers
0: yes yeah i think if it's a spoiler to the last episode of the series then yeah we leave that be
1: it's not really a spoiler how the episode ends because there isn't a definitive ending. Look, per- permission, to, permission to say how the last episode and therefore the entire show ends.
0: Beryl Marston arrives at the door and Christmas is wrecked for everybody concerned. The scene changes to black and white and 60mm film.
1: Barbers of Dodgy strings kicks in.
0: No audience laughter and yeah it, it ends goes like a... a spanish game show <laughs> it all goes a bit channel four no i was gonna say early one okay one we issue. haven't talked about
1: the proper ending
0: <laughs> look if you don't want
1: to know how it ends pull out your earphones skip forward in the file shout do something right three two one the implication is is that Jerry and Georgie are definitely going to get back together because they've had a lovely Christmas and they're now alone on the stairs and drunk. I did kind of fudge the last bit. <laughs> Despite the fact that it's probably less than a week since I watched that last episode, a lot of it seems to have been overwritten in my mind.
0: Right, now, I wanted to mention one issue that I had with the show. Because, yeah, like I said, I really enjoyed that Beryl Marston. As far as the title character is concerned, as we've mentioned, Beryl Marston is... The woman who Jerry has had an affair with, which has then led to the situation between Jerry and Georgie. And we see Belle Marston in sort of silhouette in the opening credits of each episode. But I was not expecting that we were going to see her unless it was like a big reveal. I mean, I'm joking there about the idea of her suddenly turning up at the door on Christmas Day. But that's sort of how I was thinking. If we ever get to see Beryl Marston, then that's how it's going to happen. Because we don't know that Georgie's ever seen her. So We're led to assume that it is her in the opening titles, but it's
1: still... She's shot from behind or with the sun against her. So she's still kind of a ghostly figure.
0: Am I right Am I right in saying that we we're not aware that Georgie and Beryl have ever seen each other? Is that right?
1: guess there's nothing to indicate that
0: so you'd think if we're gonna see beryl marston in the show then this is gonna be a bombshell this is gonna be something big in actual fact we get glimpse of beryl marston in episode two when jerry and georgie have been out for the evening about in the town and Georgie says at the end of the episode, she says, oh, "I nearly made a big mistake last night because you know she was getting on so well with him, she was maybe thinking, you know, all is forgiven and so on." And when they go into this pub, barman says, "Oh, somebody's asking for you, Jodie." It's herself, and we get a glimpse of Belle, and she looks.
1: She doesn't look like a siren. She just looks like she's there out right for a drink. Hello, she doesn't. She doesn't look like some sort of life wrecking goddess.
0: And that, that that's it, and we don't see Battle again, at any point. And yet, it's such a sort of throwaway moment. Is you think that really should have been saved up for something big, that you know that could have been, I mean, that could have been a, like a really really big episode six. But no, so. Nothing really comes of that. But it is, it, it's quite odd. And it did surprise me the first time I saw that. I was not expecting this to see Beryl that early. And then for her, effectively, for her appearance to be so sort of inconsequential.
1: I'd love to know more about the recording dates for this. I'd love to know if episode one is a pilot shot sometime before. Because that's episode two and it's already, oh, they're having a good time. Look, they're going to get back together again. Don't you want them to get back together again? And then episode three is the backstory which I didn't think we necessarily needed to see. i almost felt like they'd already run out of ideas. We know the backstory have been told in episode one what happened, but it's like now we have to see it happen. I don't know if maybe they put it there, because otherwise if you put all that stuff in episode one, you're starting a sitcom with the actual breakdown of the marriage and it's too much of a downer.
0: Yeah, and it's also quite a lot of exposition for a first episode. That's something that we've touched on in the past about Shows which have suffered because it takes so long to get across to the viewer the initial setup. And by the time you've finished explaining the entire thing, you've sort of run out of time for any big laughs. Um, And we had mentioned to each other when we were watching the shows that this is something that I'd first discovered in Markham and Wise's autobiography of 1981. They talked about how in a six-part show... In their case, a sketch, of course. If you have six parts to a series, if you have two episodes which are not quite absolutely top-notch, then they'll be positioned as episodes three and five so that a show launches well, holds the audience's attention the following week. Then if you have a dip in episode three, you get the audience back with episode four. And then with episode five, it's like, okay this one's not quite up to scratch. However, it doesn't matter because next week we gonna have a big finale. So you know the last one is going to be a big one. And that was really noticeable in this series, that Episodes 3 and 5 really felt like Episodes 3 and 5. If you'd skipped them, then you weren't going to miss really anything in terms of the development of the plot. I mean, Episode 3 is the one with the backstory. And yeah, it's interesting to see how it comes about but it doesn't actually move the narrative on any further.
1: Oh huge disappointment because it's a flashback Georgie has a different haircut probably because she's a good wife so she has long hair but then of course as we know her today she's a modern 80s single business woman she's got short hair so we're thinking oh hang on a minute okay they've done the old thing let's have the flashback episode oh my hair's different like Gareth Hunt is going to be on anymore and they hold off from us seeing him (laughs) we hear him but it's like, oh, he's going to come down with a Jason King moustache. <laughs> or something crazy. Come down with sideburns. Or a mohawk. <laughs> no, he's, it's his usual self, so why did they hold off for seeing him? It's almost like these people hadn't seen a lot of 90s sitcoms back in 1981. <laughs> so Beryl Marston, strong, strong premise, strong performances... It has jokes, and yet it didn't charm me. Now let's flip that coin. <laughs> Take a letter, Mr. Jones. Strong performances. The jokes are kind of weak, but I kind of like Take a Letter, Mr.
0: Jones. I know. I know and I think it
1: should have run a little bit because I think after a while it would have become something good.
0: Okay, let's explain a little bit about what we're talking about here. So Take a Letter, Mr. Jones. Everybody
1: the... already knows all about Take a Letter, Mr. Jones because it's so famous.
0: Now, I've Gotta disagree with you there. I'm going to take that statement at face value and I'm going to slightly disagree with you there because I don't know of anybody else who set their alarm clock to see Take a Light Mr. Jones on a Sunday morning in UK Gold. So, for all I know, maybe everybody was doing that, but I have suspected it was just me. So just in case there's anybody who hasn't actually seen Take a Letter, Mr. Jones, given that it was aired once in 1981. The overall premise is that Rula Lenska is an executive at Top Corporation 8 Star, who've got their fingers in all manner of pies, and John Emmon is her secretary, Graham. And this is uh, an in as much as that's the setup, and it's commented on in the first episode, and occasionally it sort of comes into play, this supposed sort of role reversal, and yet quite often it's really not the central issue at all. We'll we'll come to this in shortly because actually there was one character in this who uh, seems to be the cause of all of the problems that that emanate in in the show. I mean, anything basically... We'll come to Maria in a second. But anyway, that's our basic sort of setup. And I mentioned to Yocho before we began recording, I mentioned this to you the other day, that in terms of John Inman's character's personality, when I'd said before about how Neville in Odd Man Out is Mr. Humphreys turned up a couple of notches, you could say that Graham is Mr. Humphreys turned down a couple of notches. Now, when you compare either show to Mr. Humphreys, then you don't really notice that a massive amount. But if you compare Neville to Graham, then they're like two different people. Yeah. And John Elliman himself said that he actually really enjoyed this series. Although he, he did enjoy Odd Man Out in a way, but he did enjoy very much Take a letter, of Mr. Jones and this is written by Chesney and Wolf, as we know them from On the Buses and Romany Jones and Yos My Dear and all manner of things and Now when do we get to Maria? To put it in a, to, to, to put it in another way how do you solve a problem like Maria?
1: Write her out. Series 2 Episode 1 Graham and Mrs. Warner have just come back from the airport after having seen Maria off back To Naples. Well, life's going to be a lot more quiet around here, and then something funny can happen that just develops naturally.
0: Oh. Okay, now this is one of my favourite instances of clunky dialogue. I'm always a fan of the expression, as you know, for example. Oh, that's all I need,
1: my cousin Alf.
0: Yeah, there we go. Now, Maria, played by Miriam Margolis, people might have seen Miriam Margolis on Graham Norton's show just a few weeks ago. If I ever get to meet Miriam Margolis, the first question I'm going to ask her is, how did you enjoy taking a Little Mr. Jones? Because I'm guessing that it's a show that she's not asked about repeatedly, the same as when you asked Terry Jones about complete and utter history of Britain initially, rather than I didn't actually prison.
1: ask him about the complete and utter history of Britain, I asked him about the invention of the handkerchief. Right. <laughs> it wasn't even anything... <laughs> I, I, my, my excuse is that I had overheard that he was talking about The possibility of doing a documentary about Richard II. And the only thing that popped into my head about Richard II is this story that he had invented the handkerchief. So I thought, well, (laughs) if he's been doing some research. Okay, he likes that question.
0: If I ever get to meet David Jason, I will ask him about Edgar Briggs. Why have I not? In terms of clunky dialogue, Maria is, I think, in every episode when she's initially introduced, she will be referred to as the mad Italian maid. And there, in a single sentence, is everything you need to know. She's mad, she's Italian, she's a maid. Wahey. Now,
1: generally, we dance around questions of offensiveness. We raised the question about Mr. Humphreys, knowing we were not going to answer it.
0: And last week, I addressed the... He's, yes. Yeah, I don't want to go back to sneaks and ladders. Let us not speak of this again. But
1: you did address that... Compare and contrast with See You, Jimmy, and Snakes and Ladders Lost. If we ever do love thy neighbour, you're going to hear a lot of faffing about as we go, well, it is racist, but it's also not racist, but it is sort of racist in the way that it's not racist, but it's not so racist as something that's really racist, but it's more (laughs) racist than something that's not racist at all. We try to be nuanced. Maria is offensive to Italians, (laughs) maids,
0: and mad people. (laughs) Maria's terrible. Maria is awful. How can we describe... Okay, well, basically, Maria... I'm not going to try and do her accent or her dialogue, but basically, you'll have a situation where... A t- typical plot will be that Rilla has got to meet this chap for lunch. Big. It's usually like, you know, because a corporation, what have you, big business deal, or got to meet this fella, whatever... Uh, for you know, signing the contract for this or other or whatever, and then she'll say, "Oh, I've promised Lucy that I would take her. Lucy's our young daughter. I promised Lucy I'd take her to, you know, this or that or whatever it may be." So then she'll say, "Graham, can you help out? Can you phone Maria?" And then that's when that's when it all starts. Basically, as soon as Maria is thrown into the mix, everything is just hysteria. And if Marie arrives at the office, then you know that furniture is going to be damaged. And if Graham has to go to the house and Marie is there, then you know that cords are going to get tripped over and water is going to get spilt and meals are going to get burned I think that living with Maria would be akin to, if you had three different radio channels on all at once, if you like had three different radios and you had radios two, three, and four, and the volume on each of them was turned up to maximum and they were all in the same room, that's sort of how I imagine it would be.
1: She's just always looking for an excuse to get outraged. She can't follow basic instructions. And she's surplus to requirements. You've got John Inman, a gifted comic actor, and he's got great chemistry with Rula Lenska. I think their friendship's very believable. It has to be. Because Mrs. Warner asks him to do everything way outside of his job description.
0: Now this this is this is true because she does take some liberties. And not just in the sense of I mean, okay, one of the episodes, for example, she has a contact there, American businessman, who says, Oh, I was trying to get tickets for the ballet, Covent Garden, I couldn't get them anywhere. And Jonathan's already mentioned to Will Lenska that he's got these two tickets and he's going to take his housekeeper there. I mean, she doesn't exactly mug him for the tickets, but. Oh, but. She just sort of says in front of the fella, oh, I know somebody's got tickets. Come on, Graham. Out of them.
1: No, out with the tickets. <laughs> okay, something just interesting occurred to me. One weird little itchy thing. As we've said before. Mr. Humphreys has to be gay for the for the jokes to make sense. Neville from Odd Men Out, as far as we can tell, is out, except when he changes his mind. Graham isn't gay as far as we can tell, but he is sort of neutered in a strange way. The situation with the ballet, he's taking out his housekeeper. He hasn't got a hot date with Miss Cynthia Lovely that he's been pursuing for a while. No, it's his housekeeper he's taking out. That kind of brushes aside any questions of his relations outside the office. Uh, Maybe I'm reading too much into it.
0: Well, I consider Neville to sort of be asexual, really, because it's just never a topic, and it's never really a subject matter at all. And this is one reason why I I like Chesney and Wolfe's writing in general, and I've mentioned before about how there are subtle elements in some of the On the Buses episodes, for example which suggest that they are not particularly inclined towards... I'm saying this despite what we've just said about Maria, but there are some elements in their writing that suggest that they have an aversion to just taking the easy road and just taking the easy stereotype and so on. I mentioned before about when there's one episode on the buses which concerns an Indian woman who's working at the bus station. And the whole basic plot is the fact that she can do a sort of snake charming act and then the snake gets loose and so on and so on. But in terms of her background there aren't really too many sort of easy gags in there. And the idea that she's going to then go out with Stan or go out with Jack that in itself it's not something that's specifically sort of commented on. It's not like they, they suddenly focus on the fact, oh, you're, you're you're going out with a an Indian lady or anything like that. So a lot of their shows, I, I get the impression that they don't always just sort of take the easy option. And I think that's why John Inman liked the role of Graham for that very reason, in a way that he didn't like Neville. So, yeah, I, I suppose don't, part
1: of it is also the, his slight, and in Graham's case, it is slight effeminacy is part of the role reversal thing. But another issue occurs to me. If we say, look, Graham is completely heterosexual, has an eye for the ladies, then we know sooner or later basically I'm saying it would turn into Who's the Boss. And nobody wants that to happen. I'm sorry well, if well, any members of the Who's the Boss fan club.
0: No, no, piece. I have to I have to admit that I I mentioned a few weeks back that I was trying out an American cable TV package and I was led to believe that one of the channels that would be in the lineup was going to be a station that was airing Who's the Boss? And I was actually more disappointed than I care to admit that it turned out that I wasn't in the bouquet and therefore Tony Dancer would not be appearing on my screen anytime soon. Do we soon. have
1: to go back to it because maybe we got a bad episode? Maybe. So anyway, that's another reason maybe for Graham to be something of a eunuch. Otherwise, you're going to get the Graham-Mrs. Warner shippers Writing all their fan fiction.
0: Oh, okay. Now here's an interesting example: the episode with the Australian businessman who is very interested in Mrs. Warner to the point where he makes Jerry and Beryl Marston look like a nice chap.
1: Oh, yes, that's it's offensive to Australians
0: as well. Well, it really, it really is because he's so overbearing. He's a and bit. Y- Creepy.
1: Yes. There's basically a slight sense that if I don't get my jollies, you're not getting this contract. I'm, I'm sure so... I'm sure that's not what they meant to happen, but they didn't take enough care not making it look that way.
0: Now, the thing is that, okay, this is a slight spoiler, but not for the series overall, just for a specific episode. It concludes with Mrs. Warner implying that Graham and her are partners. Now, the thing is that you've got, simultaneously, you get the sort of sense that the audience, bearing in mind, of course, that they principally associate John M. with Mr. Humphreys, they're sort of looking at this as as if, blame me, you know, the the idea of it, the two of them together. And yet the reaction from the businessman is simply, oh, I apologise, I didn't realise.
1: Oh, he's more more like that Graham's a little weedy fella that's more his thing it's not kind of like i thought you were playing for the other team what was that? what was that youtube comment you found well let's not embarrass anybody even even people who comment on youtube videos maybe should be allowed to keep but sorry when i was being crass there i was quoting something but it was it was an australian thing actually that the comment was on
0: do you want to send the comment no no it's
1: okay by the same token graham does kind of leap out of his skin a little bit he doesn't think, hey, I'm onto to a promise here. But that's fine, it keeps... The relationship, at least at first, has to be kept that way. Maybe if it'd run to five series, they'd have to start cranking up some sort of sexual tension. Can we talk about the other bad thing about this show?
0: Uh, yeah, okay, the bad thing. Are we talking about Lucy?
1: <sighs> She's too much the cute kid. It's not quite her catchphrase, but one of the... "Oh, you are silly, to Graham. She's not just cute, she's calculatedly cute. And she's also very badly
0: behaved. She is badly behaved. And of course, it's always poor old Graham. And usually it's going to be like Maria taking her eye off the ball that that allows Lucy to get away with a packet of chocolate biscuits. But it's always Graham. Poor old Graham gets the blame for it.
1: But, you know, she, she has tantrums. She has to be physically dragged to the dentist okay, that might be a certain amount of realism, but I don't want to see it on my happy,
0: happy sitcoms. Mind you, if your dentist was Mr. Bronson, then would you go willingly? Oh, Hitler. (laughs) I should just point out that the dentist is played by Michael Shear. We didn't just pull that out of thin air. (laughs) It was a flight of fancy.
1: I mean, he's played Hitler a lot in a lot of different things, but there is an episode of The Tomorrow People where he plays Hitler, and he does have the line, I am Hitler! (laughs) <laughs> so those are the it's it's maria and lucy are the two big problems and generally mileage is got out of them acting up and in other scenes we see we we don't necessarily need that i think i like the office i think maybe that's what i like about it i like the office with the big ground glass windows i like the fact that it's lit like an lwt sitcom
0: okay now are we being a fall here Because, of course, if you haven't seen the show, then this might sound like we're sitting here saying the annoying thing about this show is that you've got a couple of characters in it who are the catalyst for all of the situations leading to hilarious consequences. And you'd be very well entitled to come back with well, surely that's the whole point. It's a sitcom. You're going to get comedic situations. You need to have people who are going to cause chaos and so on. Why are you arguing against that? Because otherwise you're just going to have a, a light drama. Um, but uh, what we're basically saying is that everything tends to emanate principally from Maria or Lucy. Everything, all the trouble seems to sort of emanate from them.
1: And it's from them just kicking off.
0: Yeah. Do this. No, no,
1: I won't. <laughs> And that could be either character. (laughs) We have John Inman, the famous comic actor, in the central role. There are business deals. There are people coming in from all over the world. They have different cultural assumptions. They have different needs. There's all kinds of weird little situations that might develop from that. We don't need a mad Italian and a little girl and a dog to come in and just start chucking stuff all around the office.
0: It's similar as far as a device which is then used repeatedly. It's a little bit similar to the contraptions in Come Back, Mrs. Noah. Sort of like fall back. It's, it's there when all else fails. That same episode I mentioned with the Australian businessman, there's a section in that where Graham is trying to keep up with the chap and drinking in the office. And then this is a nice little bit of business where Graham's gonna go over to the telephone and speak to Mrs. Warner and so on, and he's clearly had too many and things like that I'd like to have seen more of. I'd like to see more of John Eman being given the space to do his bits of business. The kind of things that he would do in a pantomime, for example, or in a stage farce, just being given sort of free reign to use his comic ability without having to always have other people running around on the screen with them.
1: Yeah, I like the show it promises to be. Can I just mention there's another bit where we're saying how how the Australian comes across as creepy. There's a story Mrs. Warner tells that I think it gets a laugh as well, doesn't it? That she was at a hotel. Basically, all the businessmen at the hotel were leering over and trying to paw her. And a member of the staff was trying to sell the spare key to her room. Yes. That's drama. That's not funny, but I do like it. I think that... Not the the key story. I do like Take a Letter, Mr. Jones. There's something there. I would have come back for series two. Yeah. Just to see if they'd ironed out the wrinkles.
0: And we should go full circle here and say that as we've mentioned, Southern at the end of 1980, so before these two shows have been transmitted, Southern has been advised that they are going to be relieved of their duties as Southern Area contractor from the beginning of nineteen eighty two. And unfortunately, the new company that comes in does not take up the reins of either that Bell Marston or Take Letter Mr Jones. They didn't even take on Warsaw Gummidge and his daft head friend.
1: No, but they managed to leg like, it to Australia.
0: That's true. No, hang on, New Zealand was it? Not? Oh, okay. Sorry, buddy. Now T V S wants it to be all new and vital and modern. And so, what was TVS's first sitcom? Because the first one I'm thinking of is That's Love with Jimmy Mulville. That's like 1988. Did they make any sitcom?
1: Now it says here, Little Armadillos sketch slash sitcom. That's 1984.
0: No, That's Love is the only full-on TVS sitcom that I can actually think of. We're talking. It came if...
1: from somewhere else with Robin Driscoll.
0: And is a this of certain...
1: sci-fi and soap opera. Right.
0: Okay. You could sort of say that TVS were reverting type there, because Southern, as we established at the beginning, were not known for their sitcoms. So, I guess TVS continued in similar vein, and went back to making programs specifically for their area, like Yachting.
1: We haven't mentioned any of the other supporting cast. we mentioned Rula as the boss. We've mentioned the bad ones. There are the women at the office, of which there is one too many. Yes, indeed. We have Brenda, the good time girl. That sounded, oh dear, I'm not doing a very good job today, am I? That is the type she plays.
0: Yeah, no, 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 Brenda is sort of bubbly, quite charming, and she's very sort of laid back and and, and just, yeah, just cheerful personality and doesn't take things too seriously. We also have Ruth, played by John Blackham, and Daisy, Christine Ozane.
1: Okay, which is which? One of them is Krabby. And he's always snapping at Graham and trying to put him down. And Graham tends to get a few good zingers off her. And the other is kind of timid and worried and surplus to requirements. Because I don't think she really gets any big laugh lines. She tends not to even feed Graham any good stuff. So somebody has to go. It's a four-sided triangle. It's got to be Graham and two others. But three others, it doesn't. It just all sort of topples over.
0: What first attracted me to Take a Letter of Mr. Jones, as I'm sure it did yourself. Part of the reason why I mentioned Brian Izzard earlier on. I am a huge fan of Brian Izzard's work, principally because he invariably has bonkers title sequences. And I'm not just throwing that word out there. Okay, let me give a couple of examples. We've mentioned Beryl Marston, which is sort of unusual and features I think this is a Brian Izzard trait is you get film sequences rapidly edited, so very, very quick cutting between scenes. And you've got a lot of that in Belle Marson intro. In the title sequence to Under Manning. I am not making this up, this is actually what it consists of. Bernard Manning in a white romper suit floating in zero gravity. Seriously. Honestly, if you don't believe me, just look it up. You wouldn't even believe it after you've seen it. And in Take a Letter, Mr. Jones, we have the delightful sight of Mr. Jones being serenaded by three secretaries who we'll never see again in the actual show itself. And they are singing this lovely song about how wonderful Mr. Jones is.
1: It's got little hyperactive, bibbly bobbly early 80s synth music bubbling underneath it. The secretaries are doing high kicks and they've had to hitch their skirt ups a bit so that you can see
0: the full effect of their <laughs> kicks. You can see what? <laughs> This is this is six thirty five Newham. Can't have anything like that.
1: It's better than it sounds. And can we also, if if we've already mentioned it, it's not actually part of our brief, but can we mention Charles Endel Squire? Oh yes, with the theme sung by Ian Cuthbertson and him getting ready and putting his corset on. And he also have you have you seen the series all the way through Mooncat? What, Charles Endel? Yeah, no. The end titles are just him doing scat
0: singing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you can understand why I'm such a fan of Brian's work Because this is a trait of them.
1: Okay, we haven't mentioned the honking great continuity error between two episodes. Right. Episode five. There is a whole sequence about Lucy's teddy. She has an oversized teddy She wants to take it on the plane with her. She can't take it on the plane, but then she can. So Graham runs back and forth with this teddy.
0: And when we say oversized, we really mean oversized. I mean, this is a big bear.
1: She could wear it on the plane. Episode six, Mrs. Warner has come back from Paris, having promised to buy Lucy a present and having failed to buy Lucy a present. Graham is then sent out to buy a present for Lucy. It's not in his job description. It's not what he's paid for. He's probably not going to get overtime for this, but he has to. He comes back with a selection he has. I didn't. I'm, I guess this is what life's like in big business. He can actually go ahead and say, give us a bunch of toys. I'm going to show them to my boss and we'll pay for the one we like and send you back the others. He brings a teddy. Teddy? A teddy? She's 11 years old. She passed that stage. Is there no script editor?
0: <laughs> well, I'm going to speak up in his favour here, Roller. Rather- foolishly, and suggest that because this is after the episode with the big bear at the airport, we are simply to assume that in the say seventy-two hour period between those two different events, Lucy's just outgrown teddy No, doesn't Miss
1: Warner say something like she had a teddy when she was three years old? The implication is that she's been past that stage for years. Graham didn't say what. What do you mean? Do, do you remember? <laughs>
0: Oh, what the hell was Arson around that bloody big beast for in Galwick last week? I had to drag that bugger from all the way back here. And it really was a big bear. Uh, but yeah, I mean, no, he should have just, he should have stood up for himself and said, no, I've had enough of this. But actually, that's the episode, episode six, where I really did think that we were actually going to get rebellion from Graham because Mrs. Warner really is taking liberties. I mean, I tell to one about how she basically just grabs his ballet tickets and Hands him to the businessman, and she's still. I mean, into the evening, she's got all manner of stuff going on with him and what have you. And he's running around and he's having to go to the house. And there's Maria causing problems, as always. Are we, we going to give away the, the end of that episode because it's not really? I mean, okay, it's the end of the episode and the end of the last episode, but it's not really like a season finale, is it?
1: I've forgotten it already,
0: <laughs> right? So are we he talking makes about mis- the ballet episode, the, yeah. He makes yeah. a mistake, okay. Of oh, no, he's I got remember that. yes. So the businessman. Said that his wife was interested in the ballet, and then all of a sudden she couldn't go. Very convenient, I must say. So she couldn't go. So then Mrs. Warner just goes and invites herself with himself. So then they go off to the ballet. And actually, th- did it turn out at the end of it it actually they didn't bother anyway? There was yes, yes, there was something terrible like that. Like they left early or didn't even get round to going. And the the payoff is that she gets a couple of tickets and then gives them so basically graham's sort of reward is where he was 24 hours previously but i really thought that oh, but there, just... there
1: there is that little shade of rebellion where after having gone and got her good dress and done all this stuff he's suddenly like well you know i've and typed up this report he's he's pleased that he can finally get to the belt at the last minute but well he doesn't have time to do his job and go and get his good suit so he sends mrs warner to get it and in the end, she's now taking down his instructions.
0: Although, to be fair, she is doing so with a smile on her face. that suggests that she's immediately going to throw this piece of paper in the bin and tell him to stop faffing about and make a cup of coffee. Yeah, so I, I was sort of expecting that we were going to see Graham, you know, going to see the warm turn and just think, no, I've had enough of this, and start just sort of yelling like the Incredible Hulk.
1: And what about his holiday?
0: Oh, yes, of course. Where was it he was going? Was it Tunisia? Was it? Somewhere
1: hot, necessitated wearing a silly safari suit.
0: Well, basically, he's running around doing things for Mrs. Warner, as always, and he's looking forward to his holiday. And then he's so bushed from all the work he's been doing that he falls asleep in the office and misses his flight. And you'd think 8 Star, being this bloody big corporation, you'd think that they'd be able to you know, get him on a, you know, the next available plane. But no, not, not an option apparently. So, yeah, I I do think that Mrs. Warner does take liberties with Graham. And, well, yeah, Graham's just going to have to stand up for himself and say enough is enough, like in that song. There are some
1: interesting production quirks in Mr. John's. I think we said about Beryl Marston that has that London weekend television look. Lights everywhere. But on top of that, we have the wipe as they move from one office to the other. There's Mrs. Warner has her own personal office and then there's the office where Graham works with the other women. Anytime Graham moves into Mrs. Warner's office, there's a nice little screen wipe. And this is not... Including the one where he asks a question and then we have the wipe before we get the answer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, we're not talking about two offices with an enormous corridor between them, which necessitates for this sort of uh, transition of time as if it's going to take Graham about five minutes from one end of the hallway to the other. No, we're just talking about going for a door. But yeah, it's it's quite nice. It's quite stylish. And I suppose you could say it's quite fitting for the era because it's all supposed to be, you know, eight stars supposed to be the cutting edge of everything and everything and so on. So you'd expect, I mean, I'm surprised they didn't use full-on Quantel. I don't know if someone had Quantel at their disposal, but if they had, then maybe we would have seen just the scenes whizzing around. And outer space, and all manner of bizarreness,
1: And then we get that Happy Days effect. John Eamon walks on, round of applause. Oh, yes. It's not a very normal thing for a British sitcom to have that. Of course, we have the things where sometimes the camera zooms out, and when he comes into view, even though the audience must have already seen him, he gets a round of applause. <laughs> Beryl Marston, strong but charmless. Mr. Jones, silly, but there's something there. It's the Spats effect. I just like being there.
0: Yes. Now, funny you should say that because next week, dear listener, is the first anniversary, you heard me right, the first anniversary of the Sitcom Club podcast. The very first Sitcom Club podcast was released on the 4th of April last year. And so closest date, being that we released the podcast on a Wednesday nowadays, is the 2nd of April. And on that day, all four founder members of the Sitcom Club Will be around the table in the international internet based Skype sense, and we will be discussing Spats. SPATS. We've been mentioning it in every single podcast since the beginning, and now is the time. I am allowed as many gratuitous teabag references as I like next week because SPATS is written by Lee Pressman and Grant Caffreau, who are the Writers of Teabag. I think we're going to have a lot of fun with this. We've got around about I think it's six episodes or so that all four of us are going to watch. Not in one sitting necessarily, because it's not meant to be seen like that. You're meant to have a gap of seven days apart from each one. In case, by the way, in case we're assuming prior knowledge and know what Spats is, and Spats is Children's ITV. Don't explain it. Download it next week to find out what
1: Spats is.
0: Now, hang on a minute, because you're actually doing a Spats trope right there. You, you sounded like the voiceover artist. It says, next week, the one who may have presented an episode of Playbus previously is going to get involved in some bit of business with a skip. What on earth's going on? Tune in next week on another exciting episode of Spats. There you go. Works for me. So, yes, that's going to be next week for our anniversary show. You can download all of our previous podcasts, including the Brian Izzard produced Not On Your Nelly, by going to sitcomclub.com. you find links there for both iTunes and your own preferred podcatcher. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at The Sitcom Club or email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com. And until we meet this time next week with Canada's favourite burger bar-based light entertainment spectacular, Ocho, thank you for your company today. Goodbye. And we will be with you again very soon on The Sitcom Club.